Our scripture reading is Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 11 through 27. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king, and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minyas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came to him and said, Sir, your minya has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your minya has earned five more. His master earned, uh, answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your minya. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take his minya away from him and give it to the one who has ten minyas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. And he replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. May God be pleased with the reading of his word. This parable, referred to as the parable of the ten minyas or the ten pounds, is the last parable in Luke's gospel. It is very similar to the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. There are many similarities, but enough differences to consider them separate. Like other parables, it uses something well-known uh, to develop and illustrate a spiritual point. As I have preached through Luke on more than one occasion, I have I've spoken of the historical D-Day landing of World War II to illustrate some spiritual point. And Jesus was a master at such an approach. His parables are, are rich in both historical events and everyday activities that the people could easily identify. Today's parable is, is no exception. He could be using the same historical story as, as a background, but with few changes, Jesus can arrive at either the same or similar point. Over the years, I've preached the same sermon. A good sermon bears repeating, but I make some changes and updates while arriving at the same conclusion. So I think Jesus is doing the same here. The setting is important. There is no break from the previous account of Zacchaeus, as verse 11 notes. 
While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. While they were listening to this, what were they listening to? Well, to find out, we need only go back a couple of verses, verses 9 and 10, and the conclusion of the account with Zacchaeus. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This means that Jesus is still in Jericho. As Jesus uh, looked about to prepare for this parable, he, he no doubt was drawn to the magnificent palace of Archelaus, the son of Herod the Great, and now ruler of Judea. <clears throat> Excuse me. Archelaus's story is behind this parable. Herod the Great died in 4 BC. This was the Herod who sought to kill the baby Jesus and was responsible for slaying the children under two years old at Bethlehem. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> he was a tyrant and cruel and dangerously paranoid. Those character traits were passed on to his son, Archelaus. We have a confirmation of this in Matthew 2, 22, when the angel spoke to Joseph, who had fled to Egypt and, and Mary, with Mary and, and Jesus. He reads, But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in the place of his father, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Archelaus was just as cruel, politically clever, and morally corrupt as his father. When his father died, he made a, an outward show of sorrow, but secret, secretly held a large party with his friends. As was the custom, though Herod apparently made Archelaus his successor as king, he would have to travel to Rome to be confirmed as king by Caesar. Before he left, he had an incident on Passover with people who did not want him as their ruler. In the end, he sent his soldiers into the temple and slaughtered 3,000 Jews. Then he left for Rome. However, <clears throat> when he arrived, his two brothers and their friends were there to contest Herod's will. In addition, a, a delegation arrived from Jerusalem, rallied about 8,000 Jews in Rome, and petitioned Caesar not to make him king. Seeking a, a middle ground, Caesar did not make him king, but gave him a, a lesser title, Ethnarch. Archelaus returned with great pomp, and he re restored the royal palace at Jericho in magnificent style, surrounding with groves of palms. He also dispatched his enemies and ruled for ten years until removed by Rome and sent into exile in Gaul. Now all the Jews knew that account, and perhaps standing near Archelaus's palace in Jericho, Jesus uses the story as a background to this parable. So Jesus begins. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Messianic fever was rising. Anticipation was, was pregnant and, and ready to usher in the Messiah and the kingdom. 
For many, Jesus fit the son of David uh, title with his miracles and his healings. And since he was on his way to Jerusalem, they thought this would be the moment he would overthrow Roman suppression and set up a new monarchy restoring Israel to the golden years. And so Jesus continued. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minyas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for his servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. Now, this is almost the exact retelling of the story of Archelaus. And the people knew it very well, as this was recent history occurring about 30 years prior. This nobleman went to a distant land to be crowned king. He gives each of his servants one minya or a pound, which was about three months' wages. And his instructions were simple. Put this money to work until I return. And after he left, a group sends after him the message that they don't want him to be their king. However, he is crowned and he returns. And he first deals with his servants. And we read, the first one came and said, Sir, your minya has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your minya has earned five more. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. Now these two servants have done well and proved themselves faithful with what they were entrusted with. They are humble, not claiming what they did, but rather saying your minyar has earned. And the first hears wonderful words of affirmation. Well done, good servant. This servant proved trustworthy in a small matter. But look how lavish is the nobleman's reward. Take charge of ten cities. He then moves on to the second who earned five more minyars and likewise richly rewards him with being putting him in charge of five cities. We can assume that the, the next seven servants did something with the money, <clears throat> but it was not necessary for Jesus to go down the list. The point was made about rewarding the trustworthiness of the servants. The parable turns to the last servant mentioned. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your menu. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit, so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? The servant did nothing with the minya given to him. Out of fear, not, not only did he do nothing with it, he tried to blame his inaction on the nobleman. Because you are a hard man, a, a strict and exacting man is the language. Doing this and doing that, I decided to do nothing. 
Now, this is totally unacceptable to the nobleman, and he lets him know it, calling him a wicked servant. The nobleman uses the servant's own words and opinion of him to judge him. Now, the nobleman does not exactly say he is these things, hard and demanding. But rather, he takes the approach, since you thought I was like that, why didn't you do something with the money and at least put it on deposit or on the bench or what we would consider, put it in the bank to earn interest? It is clear this servant did not really know his master. He considered him hard and strict and greedy. While we saw in his awarding the servants who were faithful, just how gracious and generous and even lavish he was to them. Then comes the judgment. The one minya is taken away from the servant and given to one who had ten. Some immediately object. And this then brings out the point of the parable. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for those who, uh, who has, to the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. In this parable, uh, this, 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 uh, this sentence <clears throat> reminds us of another parable in Matthew 20, that of the workers in the vineyard. Remember that there a, a man hires workers at different times of the day and they all agree to work for a denarius. Then the master pays them all the same amount, regardless of how many hours they worked. And they object. But he says, quote, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Likewise here, the nobleman can do what he wants with his money and rewards. Second Samuel 2.30, those who honor me, I will honor. In the last verse, we have a severe conclusion. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. When Archelaus returned as ethnarch, he executed those who tried to oppose him in Rome. Now this parable is not just a re recounting of the story of Archelaus. Rather, it is speaking of Jesus, his kingship, and his second coming. The nobleman represents Christ, who very shortly will leave to a distant land in his resurrection and ascension. Jesus was always king. The Magi knew this at his birth when they came asking, where is he born king of the Jews? But after his ascension, we have his session. Now, session is, is an older word, simply meaning sitting down or being seated. As R.C. Sproul noted, the most important session of all is the session of Jesus Christ in heaven. When Yahweh said to David's Lord, sit at my right hand, he was saying, be seated in the highest place of authority in the universe. Every time we read in scripture of Christ sitting down or being seated at the right hand of the Father, we are speaking of his session as king. As in Ephesians 1, 20 and 21, it speaks of the Father's power in that he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, 
far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is in, that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Again, in, in Hebrews 10.12, where it contrasts the Old Testament sacrifices with the sacrifice of Christ, it reads, but this one, meaning Christ, when he had offered one unique sacrifice as a substitute for our sins for all times, sat down at the right hand of God. You know, one piece of furniture that was never found in the temple was a chair or a throne. The priest's work there, the work of the sacrifices was never done, and there was no time to sit. But Christ's sacrifice was final. As he said on the cross, it is finished. And in his session, he sat down at the right hand of God. We also read that in the end, those who joined the beast and war against the lamb, as in Revelation 17, 14, they will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And with him will be his call, chosen and faithful followers. And this King Jesus will return. And when he does, there will be an accounting and a, a judgment that begins in the house of the Lord among his servants, just as in the parable. In the last chapter of Revelation, Revelations 22:12, our Lord proclaims, Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Now this verse takes us back to the Garden of Eden and, and it shows the fulfillment of the covenant of works whose reward is access to the tree of life. When the first Adam failed, he was banished from the garden so that as Genesis 3.19 states, he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Because of sin, no one is able to fulfill the requirements of perfect obedience to the covenant of works. All our efforts are tainted by sin and considered as filthy rags before our holy God. And all those outside of Christ will be judged by what they have done, judged according to those filthy rags. But remember, the only person to have fulfilled the covenant of works was Christ Jesus, the last Adam. Those who put their trust and faith in him have washed their robes in his blood. They are saved by faith in his works on their behalf. And they are given the right to the tree of life, as was first intended. In the covenant of grace, believers will be judged not by their works, but by Christ's works of perfect obedience in their place. Each servant received one minyar, 
or can we say, receive the good news of the gospel? Our Lord expects his servants to put his gospel to work until he comes back. To those who prove faithful, he will bless abundantly, lavishly granting us rewards. As Paul writes in Ephesians 2, that God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Positionally, believer, we are raised and seated with Christ at the right hand of the Father. Therefore, as Colossians 3, 23 and 24 instructs us, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. The story is told of a missionary woman, a woman missionary, who worked with the Wycliffe Bible translators in South America. In the years before computers were popular, such translation work, uh, translating from unknown languages, uh, the Bible in, into a language that they could read, often took decades. Initially, she had success among a remote Indian tribe and even started a church. After 20 years, <clears throat> the work was drawing to a close. But the Indians were, were drifting away, getting involved in the, in the drug trade. Finally, on the day of completion, when she was hoping to celebrate, not one Indian showed up. The woman was crushed in spirit and sought the Lord. She rose from her knees renewed. As the Lord gently reminded her, you are not serving them. You are serving me, and my reward is with me. Yes, in the coming kingdom, there will be rewards as well as responsibilities, as the parable shows. Faithful believers will rule and reign with Christ. However, for those who did not want Jesus as king, there will be the severest judgment. Anyone outside of Christ, trusting in their own works, will be lost. This is clear from many passages, such as 2 Thessalonians 1, beginning at verse 7. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among those who have believed. As the parable concluded, all non-believers will be considered enemies to be destroyed. So I have addressed the servants who proved faithful and trustworthy. Theirs will be a lavish reward. I've also addressed those who do not want Jesus to be king. 
condemnation awaits them. But what about that last servant? You know, it's not easy to place him in one category of, or the other. Scholars debate where he belongs and whether he is a believer or not. If this parable parallels Matthew's parable of the talents, where the unprofitable servant is, is at the end cast out into outer darkness, we know he was not a believer. But Luke doesn't say that. He does label the servant as wicked. And it appears obvious the servant does not really know the nobleman from his accusations towards him. If that is the case, we should view him as something of a Judas figure, associated with but not really part of the apostles. Those who claim, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and that in your name? Jesus answers, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. If you have never called upon Christ as your Savior, repent of your sins today. Put your trust in him, in his saving work, and re receive your coin. And then go and, and put it to work for the kingdom. Do so today. For he may return today. Or you may meet him today in death. Call upon Jesus as your Savior today. As we look at this servant, on the other hand, some view this servant as being wicked in the sense of being disobedient and lazy. He represents the countless numbers of unprofitable Christians that sit content in their salvation but contribute nothing to the cause of Christ. He then might fall into the category that Paul wrote of as, as being saved, but as we read in 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15, if anyone builds on this foundation, meaning Christ Jesus, using gold, silver, costly stone, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what he has built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the fires. How sad will it be to stand before Christ, our Savior and Lord and King, empty-handed? The old hymn laments, must I go empty-handed, thus my dear Redeemer meet? Not one day of service give him, lay no trophy at his feet. Must I go empty-handed? Must I meet my Savior so? Not one soul with which to greet him, must I empty-handed go? Christian, it does not have to be that way. Recommit to serve him, showing your devotion and gratitude for who he is, your Lord and King, and all that he has done for you. Certainly we are called to, to share the gospel, Proverbs 11.30, but a life lived loving God bears lasting fruit, for the one who is truly wise wins souls. <clears throat>
But we are also to care for uh, widows and orphans, the poor and the prisoner. We are to seek justice and resist injustice. We are to use our gifts and our resources to serve in any way we can, wherever we can, whenever we can. We are called to be productive, fruit-bearing, hard-working servants of our King. By doing so, we will have a handful of blessings to present to him on that day, echoing the words of the trustworthy servant that we have earned ten more. Oh, that we would be investing in that future day, seeking to come with hands full rather than empty. Famed preacher H.A. Ironside once said, No one ever lost out by excessive devotion to Christ. Let's pray. Oh, our Father in heaven, we are humbly come before you, Lord, and we praise you and thank you for your gifts to us, the gift of salvation, the gift of our, our resources, our talents. And Lord, we we repent and confess that, Lord, uh, that we haven't used them fully. And we have not put them to work as, as, as we could. Lord, we pray that your spirit would reignite a desire to do so. That in whatever time we have in our journey here, that we would be working for the kingdom. That we would be active in your vineyard, doing your work and sharing the love of Christ and the good news of the gospel with all through word and deed. Lord, I pray also if there's any who have heard this today and uh, do not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, have not called upon him, Lord, have not repented and confessed their sins, that they would do so today, that they would tr put their trust in you, and that they would indeed, Lord, uh, reach out to you and call upon the name of the Lord that they might be saved. We thank you for this time together, Lord. We ask your rich blessings upon us for the remainder of the day. And we pray this all in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.